This is the Western Obsessions TV podcast, where hunting's not a hobby, it's an obsession. All right, this is the Western Obsessions TV podcast. I'm your host, Kurt Belding. My guest today is the chairman of the Colorado Bowhunters Association, Mr. Henry Ferguson. Hey, Henry, how's it going today, man? Good, Kurt. How are you? Good. Uh, thanks for spending your time to jump on a podcast with me. I really appreciate it. I know time is valuable and it seems like we have less and less of it nowadays. That's a fact. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was thinking it was just me, but <laughs> glad to hear that other people struggle with the same problems. You know, those, if, if, if we could get some 26 hour days in here, I think, I think I could probably get caught up. Yeah. But, just a- uh, a couple then, more hours. <laughs> yeah, until then, I'm going to be chasing it. <laughs> you know, and I don't know what it is about time as we get older, but I think I do it to myself. I fill up my calendar so much that like, oh, I got an hour here. I can slip this in. But when that day hits, I'm like, oh, my God. Why do I do no this to time. myself? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I find that very, very relatable, Kurt. I wish I didn't. Um, but yeah, that's. Man, I'll tell you, this this last year for me has been just extra busy um, being as involved in the CBA as I am. It's it's kind of, it, it's really amplified a lot of the busy times for me. So, yeah, you know what? It's a, it's a cause that I'm passionate about. It's something that means a lot to me. And I want, uh, I want my son to be able to have these same opportunities bow hunt that I do. So mm-hmm. I had to get involved. Yep. And so, you know that leads me right into let's talk about the Colorado Bowhunter Association. Yeah. Uh, like I was confessing to you earlier, is I don't didn't know a ton about it before we decided to have it do a podcast together. I know quite sure. a bit more now, but um, any listeners that I have, I'm sure if they don't know about it, they'd love to know about it. And if they do know about it, I'm sure they'll love to know more about it. So tell me about the Bowhunting Association. Well, so the cool thing is we're a we're a 50 plus year old organization. We we're started in 1969 by five guys in the state of Colorado who decided that uh, not having a bow hunting only season wasn't cool. And so they got involved. They, they went to work and did something about it and got a five day season to get started. So that's kind of cool. That's where it started out. And eventually it went to 20 and went to 30. And I mean, so it's, you know, we've had a, we've always had these season dates are always kind of changing on us and, you know, season dates and lengths, but really the, the, the biggest job of the CBA is to, to advocate for bow hunters and to work to assure that those season dates and season lengths stay in our favor. And it's, it's an all volunteer organization. We have, you know, we don't have paid employees. I'm, I'm 100% volunteer, and um, it's it's just something that everybody on our board we're all passionate bow hunters, and it just it means a lot to us, and that's why we're involved in it. Yeah, wow, that's great. I you know I don't even realize like because we have what we have now. Looking mm-hmm. back, there wasn't even a bow hunting only season, which is amazing. Yeah, there was nothing. There was nothing at all, and so you know it was it was through the efforts of these guys who came before us that, that we have these dates that we have now. And I'm, you know, I'm grateful for it. And I just am am glad that I can be a part of maintaining these, you know, throughout the future. And that's, you know, at some point we all have to kind of get involved or um, I mean, it's, 
in the in the modern age where social media and forums are a, are a reality, it's uh, very easy to sit on the uh, sidelines and just kind of you know hurl insults at stuff and you know just talk about the way things are wrong. But it's the difference is the people who get involved and get get to work and try to try to make an impact and make it better. And that's that's what we're trying to do. I mean, every single one of us on the board are just trying to trying to advance the cause and advance, you know, make, make things better. Yeah. You're, you're, you're hundred percent right. There's so many cowboy keyboard, keyboard cowboys out there. Oh yeah. Like loves to say, they love to say something negative, but when it comes time to like actually do something, then there's crickets. (laughs) Yeah. And we've got, we've got a couple of them and you know, Hey, every, every state, every organization has their detractors and there's no, there's no doubt about it. And, and the fact is, you know, even if even if you go with something, uh, let's let's take our, our our current season dates, our current deer and elk season dates west of I-25 are uh, September 2nd through September 30th. Mm-hmm. Okay, well that's a recent change, and and I'll I'll tell you it's one that I don't care for personally um, because I'm a mule, I'm more of a mule deer hunter. I mean I mm-hmm. I'm just guessing looking over your shoulder there, Kurt, that you might be a, a bit of an elk and whitetail guy. Yeah, but uh, but you know, I as a mule deer hunter, these these new season dates are not really conducive to to me finding success. I mean, yeah. I've still done all right, but the fact is, an earlier season, an earlier start to the season would be advantageous to bow hunters. Um, mm-hmm. Having said that, when we pulled our membership at the last five year season structure. Um, 70 over 70 percent it was like 72 percent wanted to see this uh september 1st to september 30th season dates because that gives you um you know i mean the the common theory is that that last week of september is is where when the magic happens for the elk rut so that's yeah. what people that's what people wanted and so hey we're a we're a member-driven organization we do what the membership tells us to do. That's what the board's job is, is to represent the membership. And we did. And we, so now we have these, uh, these dates that everybody wanted and well, that most people wanted. And, uh, you know, there's a couple downsides to it. I mean, this, you know, we did, yeah, we picked up that last week of September, but what we also lost sometimes as much as a week in our, in August, um, if you're hunting mule deer, you know, every additional day you get to hunt them in velvet <clears throat> is a real advantage um, for a couple of reasons. Number one, they tend to choose a little bit more open terrain when they're, that velvet's on their antlers. They're a little softer and they don't want to they don't want to get them banged up in the in the brush. And number two, um, they're just a little bit more patternable during that uh, during that time of year. So it's a. Uh, and so that's drawback number one. Drawback number two was unfortunately we went from having five full weekends to now we could have four weekends in a season, um, and, and that's that is a that is definitely a disadvantage. I mean, hey, if you're trying to get your kids out there, you know, when we mentioned this to people um, to to the folks when we handed out the survey, and they they still they still wanted the first through thirtieth and. You know, CPW changed it to the second through thirtieth because that way it would coincide with those uh, bear season dates, and it would just be easier for them on a uh, logistical standpoint. But 
but yeah, I can yeah, definitely nice. see how like uh, if you're a mule deer hunter, and I am, and I love mule deer, how obviously more time spent in the field to pattern a mule deer is better, and it's sure. it's tough, uh, you know. You know, if you want to hunt mule deer in the rut, you're gun hunting. Uh, you're not bow hunting and let, well, I mean, you can bow hunt, but you are. Or you're out east on a, on private land, you know? Yeah. 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 So I can definitely see how those, that season change. When did that date change? Uh, how long ago? This was is that? year three. So there's, it's a, it's a five-year season structure. So basically it was 2000 was when that went into place. Mm. Um, or, or I'm sorry, 2020. Um and so 2025 would be the, the last year in that, or uh, 2024, it would change again in 2025. Yeah. So, I mean, there's already discussions happening about, you know, uh, potential changes in dates and stuff like that. I mean, there's, these things are always being discussed in the background, as well as right now, one of the big hot button issues, and I just sat on a uh, six hour uh, live feed for the CPW commissioners on Tuesday was for the uh, the uh, allocation of resident versus non-resident licenses. Ooh. And so this is a major, major issue that's going to be determined likely within the next year. Um, and, you know, the, the CBA has worked very hard on this. We have, a, we will have a seat at the table as one of the stakeholder groups that is involved in all the discussions going forward. So. Yeah. We'll be sending out surveys and this is what we do. You know, we, we make sure we get the pulse and the heartbeat of, uh, of our membership and make sure that we are representing them and, and their desires to the legislature, to uh, CPW, to any number of different things. So that's our, that's our responsibility and it always has been. So what's your opinion on that, Henry, as, as far as allocation? Well, that's a, that's a really tough one. And I'll tell you what, here's the beauty of being the chairman. Um, my vote in our board meetings doesn't count unless there's a tie. And then I would cast the deciding vote. We don't tend to be real split. We have, we have lively discussions before we uh, put anything to a vote. And typically we get on the, pretty much the same page. Having said all that, um, I'm not trying to avoid answering it, but I will say Sorry. this. Um, we, I feel that we should be more in line with other Western states. Currently, we are way, way more generous with our non-resident tag allocations than any other Western state by far. And it's something that I think just needs to be brought back in line. I'm not saying no non-residents by any means, because, you know, they, they have a, uh, a huge financial, uh, positive financial impact on our state, not just for CPW, but all the communities that they recreate near. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying, though, is that as residents, as the taxpayers for, you know, here in the state, it, it, it's only right that we should get some uh, prefer a little bit better preferable treatment on uh, tag allocations. Yeah. Uh, selfishly and personally, I want to say, I want to hunt in my own spots and I don't want anybody else there. Right. And, well, yeah, but, you yeah. and me get along just fine on that. <laughs> Unless of course our spots happen to be the same spot. Then, right. 
but I understand on a business side, like that's like financially out of state hunters spend a lot of money in the state of Colorado, not only on tags, but like you said, in yeah. the community. So that is a big deal. That's going to be a tough decision to make. And I'm glad I'm not the one making it, to be honest with you. I agree. I agree hundred percent. I'll, I'll tell you what, the interesting thing was this, this uh, YouTube meeting that I sat in on this commissioner's meeting, um, it was it, the numbers that they gave were astonishing the impact that would it would have on CPW's budget if they went to uh, a non-resident cap if they capped non-residents at 20 percent it was it was close to it was just under a six million dollar loss in revenue Dang. annually for CPW Dang. so I mean we're we're a kind of a unique state in Colorado in that we have we have a lot of things going for us I mean number one we're the if you're coming from the East Coast or the Midwest, we're the first place you hit driving along I-70 where you see mountains. Mm -hmm. And those mountains have elk. In fact, we have the biggest elk population in the country. Yep. Furthermore, <laughs> we have the most generous allocation of non-resident tags. We make it easy. You can literally stop at Walmart or CPW office or uh, Dick's Sporting Goods or any, any place of sportsmen's along the way and grab yourself a tag. It, it, we make it incredibly easy for yeah. people. And I, I, I do fear, and one of the things that they mentioned in this meeting was um, even if they keep the allocations quite high, um, they do fear that they'll lose a lot of people simply by making them go through a drawing. Um, a lot of these, a lot of states back East, I mean, the drawings are pretty much a Western thing. I mean, you'll have a couple states in the Midwest, you know, in Iowa and Illinois that have drawings as well, but and in Kansas. But for the most part, drawings for for big game tags that's a Western thing, and so a lot of people literally it, it will it will scare off a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and so so there's a there's a what I'm saying it's a long way of saying it, but there's a lot to be considered. And I, yeah, I, hey, I, I'm like you, Kurt. I want to be able to hunt my home state every year. And one of the proposals is, and, and I think this is a very, very fair proposal. One of the proposals is um, non-residents -re would be able to hunt over the counter every year. We'd just be able to go buy a tag as we normally do. Um, non-residents would have, and th again, this is only a proposal. This is not this is not something that is set in stone or has even been formally proposed, but one of the suggestions um, was an OTC with caps. So similar to what Idaho does, they, they have over-the-counter tags available and they have a finite amount of those tags. And when they're sold out, they're gone. Mm -hmm. So it's going to create a big rush on you know the internet the day that those go for sale, but Hey, that's that's fine. I mean, you'll you're still giving a tremendous amount of opportunities. Yeah. And that's really what they want to do is they want to they want to maintain the opportunities for residents and non-residents alike, but um, you know, maybe just adjust the ratios. So it's a yeah. it's a tough it's a tough decision. Very tough decision. Yeah, it, it is a very tough. And you were talking about um, you know, scaring off what eastern hunters or midwest hunters. 
being doing a draw system. And I, I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in, the, in Nebraska where there was no draw system. And I, when I moved to Colorado. Yeah, unless you're in for elk, that's, yeah, that's it. That's, that's the only it. thing you have to draw there. Yeah. <laughs> so, so when I moved to Colorado, man, the, the barrier of entry, the, the increased knowledge that I needed to have to figure out how to go hunt and the draw system, the units and the preference points, it was a lot for me to learn. It took a it's while. overwhelming, to be honest. Yeah. And yeah. I've, I've coached a lot of my friends through it who, you know, people I just meet at the range who just moved here and stuff. And it's hard. I mean, it is it is flat out overwhelming. There's a lot of information to be processed there. And, you know, we have Colorado does have a couple of cool things, a um, couple of cool steps that you can do as far as you know, calling in and talking to hunt planners and stuff like that. And that's great, but it's, you know, if these guys, those guys have all the knowledge or most of the knowledge, but you got to take the time. You got to humble yourself enough and admit that you don't know everything and say, okay, just hands in the air, waving my white flag, (laughs) show me what I need to know here. Yeah. And, and really that's kind of what it boils down to, you know? Yeah. Well, and so, you know, we're sitting here talking about non-resident hunting and uh, we've seen a tremendous spike of hunters over the last three years since COVID. And what do you do? One, what do you think about that? What do you think why that is? But also, do you think that is the reason why we're looking at um, changing non-resident allocation of tags? You know, I'll answer the second part first. I I don't think it's the reason we're looking at changing non-resident allocations. The reason is because it's become increasingly difficult for residents to acquire tags to hunt their home state. And that's that's the reason it's happened. Um, It's, it's, you know, some, some steps have happened over the last year or two. There was a citizen proposal that actually went to the legislature because they weren't getting the reaction they wanted out of CPW. And it didn't make it through the legislature, but what it did was cause the legislature to really put this on their radar and say, guys, and talk to CPW and say, we really need to have, we need to address this. So that's that's kind of what it's done. But I think the rise in hunting pressure that we've seen during COVID, um, you know, it, it was it was kind of a weird time. I mean, I'm in the furniture business and we saw just dramatic changes in customer behavior and customer needs and how they how they shopped um and that was crazy and and crazy good for the most part for us but it was it brought along a lot of challenges too it it exposed a a lot of flaws in our supply chains um and us and every other person who relies on a a semi-truck or heaven forbid a shipping container to get something to their uh, to their end customer but I, I think what it did is it exposed a lot of these flaws also in the grocery supply chain. We saw shortages of meat. We saw shortages of just about everything on the shelves. I mean, I think if people could start making their own toilet paper, that would probably be the, <laughs> the biggest growth industry, you know, a little cottage industry. But, but truthfully, we, we saw a lot of people who wanted to become more familiar with the with the process uh, in which the meat went from the field to their table and so that that i think opened a lot of people's eyes and the cool thing is it kind of just 
it just kind of put us back a couple generations because that's how the previous generations thought about things. You know, they knew where their food came from. I mean, most of the people had a, uh, a real connection with the outdoors, whether it was, you know, them or a, a generation or two away, uh, you know, through a, a father and uncle or grandfather, whatever. Um, and I, I thought it, we had a recent discussion with one of the commissioners from CPW, um, one of the, and her name's Taisha Adams. And she had a, she brought that point up and she said, you know, I want to reconnect people with that lost, you know, with that past generation. And because she goes, you don't have to go back too far on your family tree to find a hunter. Mm -hmm. That's all there is to it. And she says, you know, we, we need to, we need to make that more common and more accepted in our modern world. And I, I love to hear her say that because it was, it was just so, I mean, I, I heard her say it. I'm like, man, beautifully stated. That was, that was perfect. I couldn't have said that any better myself, but yeah. Um, and you know, it's, it's cool to see that we have people like that on that commission that are making those decisions yeah. on our behalf. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, that is very truthful. You don't have to go too far down your lineage to, to find yeah. a hunter in your family. And, um, but yeah, we've definitely seen an increase of hunters, whatever, whatever it might be. And, I'm torn on both sides because I love seeing new hunters. I take new hunters out every year yeah. uh, and show them the ropes because I know the barrier of entry is so hard and so big, especially in doing any kind of bow hunting. Cause that's usually a back country type of hunt. Um, but well, the other just, it's lower odds of success anyway. I mean, anybody yeah. who I, I look and I, I mean, this is, this is going to sound funny from the chairman of the, Colorado Bowhunter Association, but my son is a great hunter. He's 16. And I mean, he's, yeah, he has a dad who scouts like it's his job, but, um, but the fact is my son knows how to get it done in the woods. And I mean, he is, he is very capable. If I dropped him out in one of the spots that we've scouted, if he's been out there with me before, I'm pretty sure that kid's coming out with a deer. And, you know, he's, he's acquired those skills over the years, but my son's a rifle hunter. And you know what? I think that's, I think that's a terrific way to learn how to hunt. You know, his, his odds of success are much higher. Um, he doesn't have to get as close. He doesn't have to spend as much time practicing with his weapon to, to become proficient with it. And it's, it's a, it's a great thing. I mean, oh, Hey, he's busy. He plays lacrosse. He's got friends and, you know, I mean, it's a, there's just the, the draws on his time are pretty extreme. Yeah. And my wife is another great example. She's a, she's a school teacher. Um, she used to be a great archer uh, before she went and got herself pregnant years ago. And, you know, our son came along and <laughs> she just struggled to find the time after that. But um you know, and she killed a, her first animal she shot with anything was a Pope and young mule deer with a bow, which still kind of wow. makes me a little ill, but it was, <laughs> it was one of the best, one of the coolest hunting stories I've ever been a part of. And, you know, and she, she wasn't raised around hunting. I mean, she's a couple generations removed from, from hunters in her lineage. But the cool thing is when introduced to it, Man, she took to it like crazy. She loves being outdoors. 
I mean, you know, in That's the awesome. evening, she's like, hey, you want to want to go out and look for some deer? I'm like, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's, I mean, she just loves being outside. And that's, that's the, you know, so my son's lucky in that he was raised around the outdoors, but not everybody was. And that's mm-hmm. that adult onset hunter, which I think is, I still think that's kind of a goofy term. It's accurate, but I still think it's kind of corny. Um it's tough because I, I know a lot of these guys and they, they struggle to find success like we all do. I mean, Hey, I, I was largely self-taught. I went out hunting with my dad once when, when I was real young, but you know, when I really got into hunting, I was, it was later on in my years and I, I just learned what I could off forums and books and anybody I could, anybody who would talk to me about it. And I, I just, the rest of it, I've just learned by being in the field. Yeah. And that is a great way to learn. That's why you learn the most is being in the field. And that's it. I've seen, yep. Um, and I've seen, it seems like in my little bubble of, of my friends or people that I am around the new hunters that I see are primarily bow hunters. Uh, they want to use a bow. They want to challenge, they want the challenge they think they want the challenge of hunting with a bow uh, before a rifle. And they say, well, a rifle just seems so easy. I'm like, well, I mean, none it's easier, it's easy. but <laughs> none of it's easy. Easier, but nothing's easy, you know? <laughs> yeah. So they do, do go through some struggle. They go out there and not see any animals and just, you know, they they enjoy yeah. shooting their bow, but I enjoy taking them out every whenever I can and and showing them trying to get them on some animals. But I have seen like the majority of new hunters that I see are bow hunters or want to be bow hunters. And that's and that's very true. And I'll tell you what, the numbers bear that out too. CPW, if you if, if you guys get a chance, I encourage you to go to YouTube, uh, look up Colorado Parks and Wildlife, and then look at the meeting that was on um, August twenty third. It was the commissioner's meeting about tag allocation. Now, fair warning, it is a six-hour recording. Um, But in the second half of it, probably the last hour and a half, they break down the numbers. And the numbers that they show are are really quite surprising. I mean, there's there's been big growth in archery over the last five to 10 years. And, And I mean, significant growth in archery and significant growth in non-resident participation in archery out here in Colorado. And that's, I mean, it's a great thing. You know, one of the cool things is it it shows how much our voice matters. I mean, you know, for a long time, bow hunters were this little fringy group kind of over there off the edge, off the side. And, and that's not the case anymore. We have a voice and we have a, uh, and not only do we have a voice, we have an organization in the CBA that represents that voice quite well and makes the opinions known of our of our members. And, you know, we've got a liaison that works with directly with CPW. That's his board responsibility is he's our CPW liaison. We have another one that works directly with the legislature. And I mean, both of these guys if you look at what we've done over the last year, those guys have been working overtime. It's It's been really cool to see the changes that we've been able to make in just a short, in just a short time. So then. Henry, can you highlight a few of those changes just for. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, we had a, we had a, uh, there was a proposal at the beginning. Well, the actually at the end of last year 
to have uh, bow hunters wear blaze orange during the most the overlapping days with yeah. muzzleloader, which that's nine days right in the middle of our season. Um, and you know this came as a result of a bow hunter being shot last year, shot and killed by a muzzleloader hunter last year. And I mean, it, it looks like, and I'm not a lawyer, but it, it sure looks like this is going to be yet another case of of gross negligence on the uh, muzzleloader hunter's behalf. And he's, he's probably gonna get in a fair amount of trouble for that as previous, you know, as the previous one did as well. Mm -hmm. And so we've had these overlapping dates that we've shared for almost 35 years. So in that time, we've only had a couple of real bad incidents. Unfortunately, two of them have been within the last five years. So that's that kind of triggered a, uh, a chain of events here. And so it was suggested that bow hunters should wear blaze orange during that time. Um, and, you know, to prevent any further accidents. And our, our suggestion was, hey, further education would be the better answer for this. And by, by that, we mean, you know, putting a little bit more extra time into having you know, having maybe a maybe a course that everybody who take who hunts in one of these overlapping seasons has to do like a, a kind of a shoot don't shoot video scenario on uh, on the website, and you could take it as many times until you pass it. But each of these things would just kind of give that person a moment of pause. Yeah. And so anyway, but what what we did is we surveyed our membership. And we surveyed everybody who bow hunts in Colorado that we could reach. And we did this through a big coordinated social media campaign. And when, uh, when we did, we actually got over 11,000 people to fill out this survey on our website in less than 48 hours. So it was wow. a, it was a, yeah, wow is, is exactly right. It was a big win for us. And the great news is, as a result, we do not have to wear blaze orange during muzzleloader season. Now we, you know, we're we are also offering our services to work with CPW to come up with some of these shoot don't shoot scenario videos so that we can we can make this a safer event for all of us out there because there's a lot of people in the woods during September. I mean, whether it's you know just the hunters, you've got turkey hunters, um, deer, elk. Uh, muzzleloader hunters for deer and elk you've got grouse hunters and that's that's just the hunter groups then you have fishermen you have hikers you have leaf peepers mountain bikers people out there on atvs it's a great time to be in the woods i mean there's a reason everybody's out there in september it's awesome out there yeah um but that was one that we were able to get that uh, we were able to get prevent that from passing um then we were involved in a, a big bill to get uh, hunter education taught in seventh grade throughout the state of Colorado. So we were we had such a big hand in that that our legislative liaison that I mentioned earlier, Wes Mendez, um, he kind of he got on this on the forefront of it, and it was really cool. He had one of the legislators approached him while he was down there testifying about. Uh, the Bobcat mountain lion hunting band, which I skipped right over, but we were a big part in that one as well and, and making sure that didn't pass. So, um, but they, this uh, representative McKean approached Wes Mendez and said, hey, would you guys be interested in 
helping us champion this cause. And Wes goes, well, let me talk to the board, but I can tell you right now, yes. <laughs> so, so Wes went down there and he testified in front of uh, the House and in front of the Senate a couple of different times. And the really cool thing was he brought his two sons along with him in their Boy Scout uniforms. And they're, these are fourth and sixth grade boys who are, who are archers um, and got them involved. And they testified and said, what a great thing this would be for them and for their friends and for people who don't have this outdoor background in their life to, uh, to be introduced to the outdoors. Yeah. So we got that passed and um, Wes's boys, um, Griffin and Hudson were, were actually sitting right at the governor's side when he signed the bill and it was so cool. And then, and then the governor grabs a pen for each of the boys and said, Hey, would you guys sign this with me too? Cause you guys had a big hand in this. And it was, it was an awesome experience. It was something that I was just really incredibly proud to, to have a role in this CBA and knowing that something like that doesn't happen without without a big effort from guys like Wes and his family. And that was huge for us. So, Um, and then we submitted uh, Joey Brown, our CPW liaison actually submitted a citizen's petition to uh, move the max let off of compound bows from 80% to 85, which has really become the industry standard. And it was something that uh, CPW looked at it they considered it and they said, you know what, for ease of enforcement and uh, to, to have better interactions with, uh, with their customers in the field, they decided to just remove that let, that let off completely. So, so the, the cool thing about that is we were one of only two states left in the country that had a, an 80% max let off. So as a result, We've talked a lot about all these non-resident hunters coming out here. A lot of non-resident hunters came out here with bows that were not compliant and had absolutely no idea. Yeah. And, and I mean, it wasn't something that we shouted it from the rooftops, 80% let off max, you know? So, um, so there were a lot of errors of omission there. And it, it's, it's not a super easy thing to enforce. I mean, you know, I used to shoot a prime bow and that prime bow, you could, you could move that draw stop wherever you wanted it to be. And it would, you could affect that let off from literally 50 to like 92%. And so it was not something that was super easy to enforce. Um, and it, it was, it was something that it, it's a great thing to get this removed because again, it just gives us a little better, and give CPW better interactions with all their customers out in the hills as well. So those were a few of the things that we were involved with this year. And it's, it's, that's literally since the first of the year. So it was a, it was an incredibly busy first four or five months of the year, but yeah, yeah, you know, throw in the middle of that, having the banquet in March and the big jamboree in July. And Oh my gosh, we didn't, there wasn't much grass growing under our feet. I'll tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You guys are definitely busy and it does seem like Colorado is one of those, uh, we're, we're a little bit slower to adapt to what all the other States are doing as far as that type of stuff, you know, the let off lighted knocks, stuff like that. And it's funny. We, we have our, 
standards have always kind of, we've always tried to mirror Pope and Young's standards. And so when Pope and Young makes a change, we look at making that change. And we were, we were a couple of years behind on the let off, but we, it was something we'd been talking about. We wanted to make sure we went about this the right way. And, yeah. and more than anything, we want to make sure that archery season remains archery season, you know, with compound bows and traditional bows um, and crossbows only when needed by medical exemption. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of states that you can use crossbows yeah. uh, right along compound bows with medical, medical or not. Yeah. And I, you know, my personal opinion on that is I understand it's quote unquote still a bow, but I've shot crossbows and it's closer. I think they're closer to a gun than a bow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you're, you're not wrong. You're not yeah. wrong. And it's, it's something that, you know, more than anything, we just want to make sure we keep the primitive as much of the primitive nature in, in the, um, in this season as we possibly can. Yeah. And, you know, Colorado does a good job of, of regulating that kind of stuff, not just in archery season, but you know, our, our muzzleloader seasons are, are significantly different than a lot of our neighboring states as well. Yeah. I mean, you know, in Utah and New Mexico, I know for sure you can use, not only can you use scopes, you can use sabotaged bullets, you can use smokeless powder. I mean, there's a lot of different, there's a lot of big changes that guys have to, to make to come hunt mm -hmm. with the muzzleloader in Colorado. Yeah. And that's great because again, it, it maintains that primitive nature of that season, which is exactly what was intended anyway. Yeah, no, I agree. But I don't speak on behalf of the, the muzzleloader hunters. That's not my, <laughs> that's not my responsibility. So <laughs> yeah, they have their own organization. They do quite well. <laughs> well, when you can shoot a muzzleloader 500 yards and kill something, I don't know if that's still a muzzleloader. Yeah. You know? I mean, it's, it's by its literal definition of being loaded through the muzzle. It is, but boy, it, it gets, you know, Hey, it gets tricky. And I mean, there's, there's guys killing stuff with bows at long range. So it, it, mm -hmm. it's, it's tough, you know, it's tough to, to figure out where to draw these lines and they're not easily drawn by any right. means. But, right. But yeah. yeah, you know, a, a thing like lighted knocks, I, I mean, my feeling on lighted knocks was always, Hey, anything that aids in recovery is a good thing. Yes. You know, I mean, because finding that arrow tells you a lot. I mean, if you find that arrow, you can see what kind of sign is left behind on that arrow. If it's green and stinky, you know, you need to sit down and grab a sandwich and start mm -hmm. getting comfortable and taking a nap for a few hours before you go out after it. You know, if it's got dark, dark red, well, you should probably still do the same thing. Yep. If it's, if it's pink and frothy, well, you know, sit down, wait a half hour to an hour and go find your buck. But yep. it's, you know, and things like that, you know, being able to find that arrow helps you to, helps you to aid, you know, any, again, anything that aids in recovery of the animal, I'm all for it. Yeah. And I do a lot of filming, so it's nice to really be able to see where that arrow hits. If I play back a film. Absolutely. And, yeah. And with a lighted knock, it, it makes it very clear where that arrow hits. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. No doubt about that. Yeah, that's something I'd even, I, we didn't really even consider that aspect. It's a, you know, smaller percentage of the, of the, the, the whole bow hunting audience, but, but yeah, that's a, that's another great point though. Yeah. So tell me about membership of the uh, Colorado Bow Hunter Association. If, if someone's not a member, how do they yeah. become a member and what, what do they get from that membership? So couldn't be easier. Uh, literally go to coloradobowhunting.org 
and there one of the things that pops up right on the main page is join us and so for 40 bucks a year you get all of the advocacy work that we've talked about already you know and our work with cpw and with the the legislators and whatnot um and in addition to that you also get six issues of our magazine and our magazine is absolutely awesome in fact huh, look at that going right there nice so this kid right here gage douglas who's on the cover i've known him since let's see he was 14 and had just an amazing amazing 2021 but what you get in this is you get it's an 82 page magazine full color lots of great content in there not just bow hunting stories but you'll get bow hunting stories you'll get uh you'll get some technical information we've got a lot of great great companies here in colorado like hamsky archery um iron will broadheads and these guys contribute a lot to our magazine as well because they're big supporters of our cause and they they um, provide some of the the owners provide some of the technical information and articles that we get in there we do highlights and interviews with local shops and kind of promote them in the magazine um, and then you'll also get an update from uh, you'll get the chairman's report which i just kind of give an overview of what we've been up to as an organization um, you'll get the legislative update and you'll also get a uh, cpw update and so i mean that'll give you um, lots of information there and like i said 40 bucks a year for that or you can do a three-year membership for 105 yeah and we're always taking life members as well and those are 1500 okay yeah that's that's great does your is your magazine digital also or is it we do uh, have a digital version as well yep yep yeah. so when when you when you join uh one of the last questions it'll ask you is would you like the digital or print version Right. So, and, and, you know, Hey, there's a lot of people who still want that, that print copy to, yeah. I mean, dude, I, I, I read them on airplanes and stuff. And, you know, that's mm -hmm. kind of where I get most of my magazine reading done, but yep. yeah. Yep. And, and, I, it's, I, and I did see you guys do something pretty cool is announce a bow hunter of the year. award. Yes, sir. That's yeah. at our, uh, well, and in addition to that, so at our banquet, um, which we have in March every year and we're, we're just finalizing a date right now. In fact, we're going on a site tour of this place next Wednesday. Um, and they're like, oh, do you want to do it the first week of September? I'm like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> I sure don't. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, I told, you know, we were, we were all in agreement. We're like, uh, no, it's going to be the last week of August or it's going to be October. And yeah. by October, it's, we have a big chance of missing out on the dates, but Anyway, we have our big banquet every year, and it's an awards banquet, which uh, we have a we have great speakers come in and speak to us. The last two years, we've had we had Jay Bowserman come in this last year and talk to us, and South Cox the year before that, Aaron Snyder, Trevin Stoltzfus, these guys have all done it as as well as you know some of the legends in the industry, you know like Fred Bear back when he was around, uh, came to one and. Um, Jim Daughtry and stuff. I mean, just a lot of the the who's who of the of the industry. And so one of the the cool things that we do though is those those awards. And so Bow Hunter of the Year is a, a really high honor. It's the highest award we give out. And it uh goes to people who have who have 
served a long time and committed a lot of effort to the CBA and, uh, you know, who have, who have had a big hand and a big role in, in maintaining these seasons and pushing the cause forward. So that's, that's kind of where that uh, bow hunter of the year goes to. Um, and again, that's a, that's a big honor. And the cool thing is when they give that bow hunter of the year award out before they award it, they ask all of the past winners to go up there on the stage. And so, I mean, you look up there and I mean, it is literally a who's who of bow hunting in the state of Colorado. And it's awesome. It's, it's really cool to see that much history in one spot right there. Mm, um, super cool. But we give out, in addition to that, we give out awards for, you know, service, area rep of the year, stuff like that. But um, we also do our big game awards. And we have uh, in those we give out, and I've got a couple of them on my wall here next to me from before I got on the board. I don't feel it's, I mean, I'm going to have to shoot a monster to get back on there now. I don't think it's <laughs> right for a board member to be on it, but, um, but they uh, will give out the top three for, you know, all the different big game species in this, in the state. And then and one of the coolest things is we give out first timer awards too. So oh, cool. this last year, it was awesome because we had, we had like a dozen kids there who came up and got their first timer award. It was, it was so cool to see the future of the sport right there in the same room with all these past bow hunters of the year, just seeing the future, the past and the present of bow hunting right there in one room is it makes for one of the coolest gatherings of the year. Yeah, that would be super wow. neat. So you guys do the banquet and then also do a jamboree, you say, right? Yeah, so the, yeah. and the jamboree. So we do the banquet in March. Um, we're actually trying to go a little bit earlier in March this year because that third weekend in March, which we've always done it, has become spring break for about oh. 90% of the kids in Colorado. So it's tough because families have already, you know, are already planning on heading out of town, going to Disney World and stuff, you know, yep. so... Um, so we're going to move it up a little bit earlier into March. So hopefully we can avoid some of those conflicts. But uh, th then we go into the third weekend in July, we do the Jamboree. And this is one of the coolest events you can ever attend. Um, we've done it for several years out by Leadville, uh, a little bit south of Leadville down by Twin Lakes. And it's on a big chunk of private property that we lease for the weekend from the landowner who graciously allows us to come do that. And it's uh, the second generation of this family that's leased this property to us. So it's pretty cool. That is cool. Um, and we set up like five 3D ranges. We've got a big dance at, the, at night. I'm, you know, we've got a live band that comes in and plays on Saturday night. It's, it's a really cool, very, very family friendly event. You know, we've got local vendors there and all kinds of cool stuff. You can come up there and there's a food truck that comes up and serves Mexican food. Um, and I mean, there's just, it, it is a really cool family event and it's, it's just awesome. If you haven't ever been to one, cannot recommend it enough. Yeah. Dang Harry. Camp on site. Yeah. Yeah. How do you, uh, <laughs> 
You guys have a lot going on. How do you hold down your full-time job? <laughs> Solid question, Kurt. <laughs> this is this is why it's typically retired guys who have this position. I'm seeing that very, very clearly yeah. now. But but yeah, you know, it's all about balance. And it, it's it's kind of funny. I had a conversation last night with a with a kid. I, okay, he's not a kid, he's he's 26, but um, it's somebody who was a kid when he went to church with us and I was the young men's leader and I was his young men's leader and taught him a lot about the outdoors and stuff. And, um, and I, I've got a buck in a unit that he's hunting. That's big. I mean, this, this, this deer needs, he needs to be on somebody's wall. <laughs> and so I, I told him about the buck right after the draw results came out. And he said, hey, I drew this unit. And I said, okay, I have been seeing a buck here for a couple of years that's real big. And so yesterday I, I sent him a message, said, hey, have you been out? Have you, have you found that buck? And he goes, well, you know, just been really busy. I haven't gotten out. And, and, I, and my, my words to him were this, if it means enough to you, you'll find the time. If it doesn't, you'll find an excuse. And so I, I feel that's just kind of how I'm approaching this this year on my work-life balance. And it's it's hard. I mean, don't don't get me wrong. There's days where I'm stressed out of my mind and I want to do, I want nothing to do with any of it. But you just have to find the ways to recharge your battery, compartmentalize things and deal with them as they come up. Don't push things aside. And that's, that's how you, how you get through it. Well, that's been my little trick so far. I don't know. <laughs> I hope I'm doing it right. <laughs> well, you're, you're still employed and you're still living. So you're doing something right. <laughs> indeed. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> well, before I let you go, you had mentioned something about your wife's buck and that's a good story. And I would love to hear the story. Okay, so so here's the funny thing. You're gonna parts of this story you're gonna look at it and go, gonna go, there's gonna be some eye rolls, but here's the cool part. All's well that ends well, and everything was done ethically. So okay. here's the here's the funny thing. We we found this buck, and this was 2004. We were we were both on staff with High Country Archery at the time, and we'd been shooting their bows for several years. And like I said, my wife was a real good shot. Um and I was good enough to get by, but she was, she was a good shot. And so anyway, we snuck in, in wide open terrain on this buck. Um, and we spotted and we were heading up to a water hole to hunt this water hole. Cause it was blazing, blazing hot that day. And so we're sneaking up to this water hole and we're just walking up to the water hole. Cause it's like two miles into the, to the water. And so we're on our way, well, about a mile in, out of the corner of my eye, I caught something that just didn't look right. So I kind of backed up a couple steps, threw up the binos, and holy crap, there's a great buck bedded under this, under this bush in this wash. And I'm, I'm like, Stacy, we can, we can kill this deer. We need to, so off go the packs, you know, we're in stock mode now because we're not, we're like 250 yards away from them where we sit right now, but we've got to loop around to get the wind in our favor. And so we looped around and we came over the top of them 
and I, I and I mean we were we were both pretty pretty novice hunters at the time. We come over the top, and I said, when we come over the top, full draw, okay? And I mean they are going to be close. And oh my gosh, I had no idea how right I was going to be <laughs> there um, when I say close, but they were literally straight below me at, at the bottom of this wash. And I mean, we came over the top, they caught a shadow or something and all hell broke loose. I mean, bucks just went everywhere. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. And I mean, the, the arrow her arrow ends up in the bank of the wash and I'm like, Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. So we, we turn around and we watch this one four point buck run about 400 yards and then he just beds down in the wide open grass field wide open prairie grass I'm like oh my gosh how in the world are we going to get up to that buck and so it was it this is where the story gets starts to really take some funny turns so i said all right let's go get your arrow um so I take one big step down into that wash on this old deer trail and a giant buck. I'm talking a 185 plus typical jumps up while all the other deer had already scattered. He stayed firm in this other bush, right under this other bush. And he jumped up and ran past me basically on that same trail I was standing on. I had to step out of the way. Holy cow. And this thing runs right next to my wife and I, I mean, feet away. I could have reached out and smacked him in the butt as he <laughs> went by us. I mean, you're sitting here thinking, do I, do I, do I try to get the knife out? And, you know, is this, is this coming to hand to hand to combat here? I mean, is this how this is going down? But it was hilarious. And we just, sat there and stared at each other with jaws on the ground, you know, just go, what the hell just happened? So anyway, we get, we get, and he takes off in a different direction, like 90 degrees opposite of where they, the other two bucks went and bedded down. So anyway, we go down there, we grab our arrow, no more deer take off. <laughs> so, you know, heart rate's still okay at this point. Um, we grab our arrow, we go over there and we get up, on a little higher point, try to kind of come up with a plan. And so my wife and I's previous hunting experience was primarily archery antelope, where, where we used our spot and spook method, you know, <laughs> where you'd spot them and you'd sneak in and spook them. Spook them. <laughs> yeah, so, so we, uh, we spotted this buck and it, there was a nice four point and a decent three point bedded about 10 feet away from each other facing in opposite directions as they often do. And so we came in 90 degrees. So they're both facing in opposite directions. And we came in this way and somehow we slipped into 40 yards on these bucks. And it was, it was kind of crazy after that. Um, and when I, we, when I say we snuck in on, we, we straight belly crawled in on these, on these deer we hunted them like an antelope on the plains and yeah. it worked yeah. out beautifully. I mean, my wife ended up shooting a, a, what turned out to be a Pope and young buck. And it was, it was so cool. I mean, just an awesome, awesome story. And that, that was, cool. that was her first animal she'd ever been at full draw. Oh my gosh. So of course she's uh, immediately I, I, addicted to hunting after that. <laughs> go 
figure, huh? Go yeah. figure. <laughs> yeah, we had gone from just having fun stories about goofing around out in the woods or out on the plains chasing antelope to, um, let's see, so she shot that buck and eight days earlier, I had shot my first Pope and Young buck. And so, I mean, it was, it was awesome. We went back to the to the the taxidermist and they thought we were they thought we were just like world-class hunters but we had gotten <laughs> world-class lucky twice <laughs> and you know and since then we've we've kind of refined the skill set a bit and we've uh we've learned how to make the most of those opportunities we've done pretty well but but boy those i wouldn't trade those early mistakes that we made for anything because those for were sure. those were awesome and they led to some fun stories you know absolutely but, and i don't know if there's yeah, any well, mistakes in that just uh okay, just a so, funny so one, yeah. one thing in there um so my wife's at full draw yeah this buck stands up he's facing straight on and again keep in mind my wife is a terrific shot and i said and she goes oh my gosh he's facing me where do i where do i hit him where do i hit him and i said right where it comes to a v and so she has got that pin right where it comes to a v makes the shot and her bow was incredibly loud. I mean, it sounded like a 22 mag going off when that thing shot. So that buck heard it, loads his legs to take off. And when he loaded his legs, we'll just say the recovery distance on that was right there. <laughs> she shoot him in the head? It, it ended up hitting him right between the eyes and it was it was crazy I mean I thought I thought she hit him like in the in the neck or something I thought you know because I did see him dip but yeah I'm watching the whole thing through the binos but the shot going off kind of startled me just enough that yeah. like, oh, oh my gosh where'd he go she goes he just went straight down <laughs> and so so the lesson learned from this in in my opinion was hey first of all you know that buck he he went from he was he was quite relaxed i mean it had been an hour and a half since we bumped him out of that that wash you know from that from then to the shot itself mm -hmm. and you know and when i got when that deer stood up he stood up because i cow called because we sat there 40 yards and we're utterly exposed like i said blazing hot day zero shade and i said stacy we've got two options here i said i know those bucks are going to get up at about seven to seven thirty. It was five fifteen at that point, <laughs> and she goes, "Okay." And you know, our packs are way the crap back there, you know, because we're trying to have as small an outline as possible, stocking in on them. And she goes, "What's option number two? And I said, "I could cow call and try to get him to stand up." And she goes, option number two, I'm ready. Let's do it. So, <laughs> so literally we stand that buck up. So a couple of lessons, a couple of things that I would have done differently now versus then is I would have sat there and waited him out. I would have just waited for him to stand naturally because when they stand on their own, they tend to stand and stretch and they'll, they'll kind of move around a little bit, get there, you know, look around. And they'll literally, I've seen them stand and stretch and they'll do like a 360 looking around, seeing if any danger is close by before they start moving on. And when they do that, they turn. 
So yeah. if they stand facing you, there's a, a much better chance of getting that broadside shot. But, you know, these are lessons that you learn. We were, we were new bow hunters at the time. And as a result, you know, hey, we made some mistakes. But like I said, all's well that ends well. When we went up there, um, we walked up on that buck. I ran back and grabbed our, or no, no, we, we went back and got the packs later. We, we walk up on that buck and I said, get another arrow knock. Let's get up there. And so we walk up on this little bank up above it and sure enough, he's laying down in there and we can't see cause he's laying in tall grass. We can't see, you know, the, where the arrow is. I just see a deer laying there legs outstretched, you know, and I mean, he just, and I said, put one more in his lungs just to make absolutely certain. I just wanted to make sure that something hadn't just like stunned it, you know? And yeah. yeah. So she put one right through the lungs and from 10 yards away where we were standing, you could literally hear the air just release from its lungs. I mean, that, that deer, it was the quickest, most ethical thing I've ever seen as far as a, a deer gone. I mean, it, yeah. he checked out instantly. Instantly. But, yeah. yeah. Yeah, not something I recommend to everybody, but you know what? <laughs> hey, if you can learn something from our experience, yeah. that's one of the beauties of doing podcasts, you know. And well, and, and again, I mean, hey, it's it, it it did end perfectly for us. It was my wife's first deer and turned out to be a heck of a buck, too. Yeah. So well, and that's one thing I know about hunting is you can calculate and try to do all the right things, but chaos still happens <laughs> it's, it is imperfect in the moment yeah. of truth it is very imperfect yeah and i've seen a lot of weird things happen i've seen deer react and you know i've seen antelope oh my gosh my my friend actually had a, an antelope buck kick his arrow oh Kid you not, i have it on video somewhere but he took a shot at this buck the wind was blowing the buck jumped he was a little too agitated. We probably shouldn't have taken that shot, but the buck jumped out of the way. And as he did, his hind leg kicked up and hit the arrow and it went just, the arrow just <laughs> went twirling. So it was hilarious. It was one of those things, if I hadn't seen it, I never would have believed it, but yeah. Oh, sure enough, it happened. <laughs> crazy things. Happen. That's why we get out in the woods or on the prairie because yeah. crazy things happen and it's a, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Well, Henry, yeah, thanks yeah. so much for your time today. Hey, I appreciate pleasure, you. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, I definitely want to get more involved with the Colorado Bow Hunter Association. So me and you can talk a little bit more about how I can do that awesome. here after this podcast. And well, um, and just so you know, we're always looking for area reps. And these are people okay. who would just be literally just as it sounds. These are our boots on the ground folks who, I mean, it's it's become as easy as having a QR code on your phone that you can have people as you're talking to them at the range, you know, just scan your phone and go follow that QR code to the website to join the join the group. And okay. you know, the, the lesson we learned this year um, in that Blaze Orange deal was having a lot of voices amplifies your message and it yeah, makes what powerful. you're saying that much more powerful. So we just want to grow the membership. Yep. that's that's the that's the biggest reason why well we'll talk more here and how maybe i can help with that so thanks kurt all right henry all right guys this, is the, this season thank you you too this is the western obsessions tv podcast you were just listening to henry ferguson the chairman of bow hunter uh colorado bow hunter association so hope you guys learned something and i'll put a link there to the website if you guys want to join i think that would be great like Henry said, the more voices we have, the more power we've got. So thanks again, and thanks for listening.
This is the Western Obsessions TV podcast, where hunting's not a hobby, it's an obsession. <laughs> 